Welcome back to the MMA Meeting Let's Talk with Weasel podcast where we talk all things MMA and there's a lot of stuff that's been happening. UFC 238 wrapped up last time. I made my results and reactions video to that. But some of my thoughts after everything conspired. First, I have to say Henry Cejudo might be the best combat athlete of all time. Now, I said that on that video in the comment section and I think people took it the wrong way. Being the best combat athlete doesn't mean you're the best MMA fighter, right? It's a different thing. He's the most accomplished. Okay, let's say he's the most accomplished combat athlete of all time gold medalist for freestyle wrestling in the olympics and he was the youngest ever to do it at that time had a crazy record throughout his amateur wrestling career and then came into the mma was undefeated lost to one of the greatest of all time and then he came back to beat him even though it was controversial it was a very close fight goes and beats one of the best bantamweights of all time in tj delashaw who cheated who talked about himself cheating i'll get to that a little bit later goes up to bantamweight so not only does he beat the champion from that division i understand tj went down but he goes up to Bantamweight and beats one of the scariest guys ever to compete in the 135-pound division. And not only did he beat him, he walked him down, walked the bigger man down with no legs, like Dana White was saying, came into the fight badly injured, and stopped that guy. First guy to stop Marlon Morris in the UFC like that. With all the achievements and accomplishments that he has now, from wrestling to MMA, you have to say he's the most accomplished and probably the best combat athlete of all time. Before, people were trying to stay Holly Holm because she was a multiple-time boxing world champion, came into the UFC, became the champion there, but, you know, it's a little bit different. The boxing talent wasn't really that strong for Holly Holm compared to the men's freestyle wrestling Olympics for Henry Cejudo, and in MMA, Cejudo beat two of the greatest of all time in terms of skills and technique and all that stuff, and went up a division two and won that belt as well, and his career is still young, he's still young in MMA, he's doing awesome things, I hope he's the second pound for pound best, you could even argue he is the pound for pound best right now, above Daniel Cormier, you can argue it, but for Daniel Cormier, he did defend both belts, right, whereas Henry Cejudo only defended one of his belts. And also, Cormier did have a very successful heavyweight career before the UFC, and even in the beginning of the UFC. So you can argue either of the two. They're neck and neck with each other. Khabib still has some things to do. If he goes out there and beats Tony Ferguson, now them three are, like, exchangeable, you know? And speaking about Tony Ferguson, I kind of wish he didn't say he would give Donald Cerrone a rematch, because now I feel like they're going to do that. And that rematch should not happen because Tony Ferguson dominated him in that second round. Really battered him, man. It was really bad. And... I'll go out and say Tony Ferguson's the best lightweight of all time. I understand him and Khabib have to fight each other to make it definitive. But if you look at them as if they're never going to fight each other, who has the better career? Who has the better wins? Who beat the better competition? It is Tony Ferguson, right? He's on a 12-win streak, which is the longest in the division's history. He beat better competition as well. He beat a prime Donald Cerrone, and I believe this is a prime Donald Cerrone. He beat Anthony Pettis, who came back to his former self, where he wasn't really focused on wrestling too much. That was why there was a decline in his skills. You know, when Pettis came back to fight Michael Chiesa and onward, it was a whole different Anthony Pettis. It was like the old Anthony Pettis, but a lot more dangerous. And you saw that with the Wonderboy fight, even the Tony Ferguson fight, he dropped him too. Dropped Michael Chiesa. Um, so he beat a very good Anthony Pettis. The rankings don't do justice to Pettis' skills. And he beat Edson Barboza, walked him down, destroyed him. He's the first one to really break Barboza. After that fight... Barboza was never really the same guy. And I would say his best win, most impressive win, was his fight with Rafael Dos Anjos in Mexico City. That was the single greatest performance in terms of cardio I've ever seen. Mexico City going a high-paced five-round fight with a former champion who was also known for cardio and outpacing him and not even getting tired by the end of the fifth round and he's dancing and stuff after. Tony Ferguson's so impressive, man. I would say he is the greatest lightweight of all time. 
You do have Habib who has fought in some championship fights, but if you look at Habib's competition, it doesn't really stack up too much to Tony Ferguson's. It does. It's the closest to Ferguson's, but it's not there yet. He's an 11-win streak, I believe. He did beat Conor McGregor, who was a good win, although you can say Conor is still relatively untested at 155. He's only 1-1, one and, one, and one of those wins is against a guy who's not even in the UFC anymore and was on a decline on his way out, and his loss was to Habib in dominant fashion. You know, he did fight Nate Diaz at 170, who is a 155-er, and now is a 170-pounder, but they had very close fights with him, who wasn't really the most threatening or the most dangerous or the most skilled guy at 155. So Connor is still relatively untested in this division, and he has a win over Ally Quinta, which is a very good win, although it was on short notice for Ally Quinta. Going from a three-round fight to a five-round fight in a completely different style, like polar opposite style from Paul Felder. But he does have a win over Edson Barboza, who completely broke him. He does have a win over Michael Johnson, was a great win as well, and he has a win over RDA. But here's the interesting thing about Habib's and Tony's wins over RDA. Habib beat RDA right at the start of his prime. Right at the start of where he was really getting good. And Tony beat RDA on his way out of the division. But yeah, Tony Ferguson, I believe, is the greatest lightweight of all time. Him and Habib have to fight to make it definitive and no argument to be set. I mean, I have a feeling they're not going to go to Tony. If they don't go to Tony Ferguson at this point, like, who, who cares about title shots? Who cares about any of that stuff? If the pay-per-view and the money is so strongly considered, just have Habib versus Conor until Conor wins. Or have him keep fighting forever until the pay-per-view numbers drop. You know, if the numbers are always so high up and that's the reason why you're going to make this fight happen again, because there's no merit anymore. If Tony Ferguson doesn't get a title shot, it's just, it's sickening, you know. I don't blame Conor McGregor for asking for a title shot, asking for a rematch. He should be, you know, for himself. He should be. It's a selfish sport. You can't blame Conor for asking for a rematch because if he gets it, it only plays into his favor and it's a winning situation for him. Because it's the biggest fight he can get, most money he can get, Khabib is the biggest draw that he can fight, and he felt Khabib out. So he has a feeling of Khabib in the octagon. I just don't see it going good for him though. Um, I think Conor will get dominated again. I think he'll get beat again. I think he'll probably get stopped again. Because not only does Conor have a feeling of Khabib, Habib now has the confidence on the feet. He felt Conor on the feet. He felt him on the ground. And he comes from a very good camp. I would say AK might be a better camp than John Kavanaugh's. And I think they can really fix problems, fix some mistakes that could be made, and figure out Conor a lot better than the first time. And Conor's been saying that he wants to go forward on Habib instead of defense. Well, that's how you're going to get taken down. He actually did that in their fight. He was actually being the aggressor when he went forward. And he was always trying to go forward. He was always attacking. He wasn't trying to counter too much. And what happened? He got taken down. And also, those shots he was throwing, being very aggressive, were not landing. A lot of them were not landing. One of the smoothest counters Habib made out there, most people missed. I broke that sequence down. The exchange was right before the knockdown in the second round, where Habib was on the cage a little bit, getting pressured, and Conor, I think, threw a lunging left hand, or he threw some punch, and Habib dodged back. He leaned away, Conor with an extremely fast left hook, and Conor tried to chain that with a knee, with a flying knee, and Habib completely evaded, away from the cage, and got in position where he landed that right overhand. It was one of the smoothest counters in that entire fight. I mean, Habib striking is not to be underestimated. He is a very good striker, especially when he's on the defense. It's very hard to hit this guy. If Conor, who has a precision and timing that he has, cannot land that clean on Habib, countering or going forward, Michael Johnson had a very hard time doing it as well. Edson Barboza couldn't do it. I, Quinto, who has a wrestling game, couldn't really do it. It's hard to hit this guy. It's really hard to hit this guy. And what we have to see is Tony Ferguson's reach and his unorthodox style of striking. 
Can that get to Khabib? Can that break the barrier? Can that break the defense? That's why that fight's so interesting. And also on the ground. He's one of the only guys that can make the ground game very interesting for Khabib. And I do like Khabib's talk about that fight. He had a few interviews recently as well as a press conference. And he was saying Tony Ferguson is deserving of that title shot. Khabib said to further his legacy, he has to beat Tony Ferguson. Well, he did say... He has to beat Poirier, Ferguson, and GSP. GSP fight is probably not going to happen. And the Poirier fight is happening right now. So he needs Tony Ferguson. But he feels that Tony Ferguson won't really pose too many problems to him. Because he believes that on the ground, Tony's quote-unquote too skinny. And he'll hold him down. I don't know about that, man. I understand Kevin Lee was able to do it in the first round. But you have to also understand Tony Ferguson's game plan. He even said he took the first round off. He made it very slow. It was obvious as well. He didn't really do much. He just waited on Kevin Lee. Because he knew Kevin Lee would burn himself out and he saw the staff infection. So he also knew that Kevin Lee was compromised. And then after the first round, he picked up the pace. Against Khabib, there is no slowing the first round down. He's going to go at Khabib full on the entire fight. And the striking, I do favor Tony Ferguson. Even though Khabib is pretty good. He has very good blocking shots, very good at getting away. And he has deceptive speed in his punches. I still think it won't be enough to get to Ferguson. I don't think you'll be able to hit Ferguson on the feet that much. Um, if Donald Cerrone couldn't hit clean on Ferguson with most of the shots he was throwing, and he's long, he's also pretty fast, he has a very fast jab, I have a hard time believing that Habib is going to be able to get in distance safely and land one of those big shots. Tony Ferguson's defense is so underrated. He has one of the highest significant striking defense rates or percentages in the UFC right now. That's crazy. But there were some things that Habib was also saying about the Poirier fight that really made me worried. He was saying things like, this is not a big fight like the Conor McGregor fight. He made it seem like he was very uninterested in this fight. And one thing that was extremely interesting to me was when he said that winning is not that important to him anymore. Or it's not as important as it used to be. And it's because he's getting more famous. And he doesn't want to be that famous. That's a concerning thought because if there's some lack of motivation or there's actually a little bit of focus on not winning the fight at this level, man, that could be scary because Dustin Poirier is not thinking like that. Dustin Poirier is the opposite. He wants to win. Like there's nothing in him that wants him to lose, nothing in him that doesn't want to win, nothing about him that thinks winning is not good. He's coming out there to punch his fist right through Habib with everything he's got. It's just a little bit concerning. I'm not going to say Habib is going to go out there and be a lesser form of himself. I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's still going to compete very well at the best of his abilities. But what I think is he's going to retire soon. That's what I think it is. He did say that Poirier and Tony Ferguson are the only fights that are for him now. And they asked him, what else? Would you go out to 170? He said, just those two fights. And let's be honest, if he beats Poirier and Tony Ferguson retires undefeated 29-0, he's one of the greatest of all time. You could even argue he is the greatest of all time. It's a very interesting debate. Now, if he goes out there and beats GSP as well, he's 100% the greatest of all time. No debate, nothing. He beat the greatest of all time in GSP. Beats the greatest lightweight of all time in Tony Ferguson. Beats one of the best lightweights today and one of the most dangerous lightweights in Dustin Poirier. Who has also been amazing fighters who merited a title shot. All while defending your belt. What did GSP say before? Someone asked GSP. I think it was Luke Thomas actually asked GSP. I could be wrong. I forgot when this was. But someone asked GSP, what's harder, defending the belt or moving up a division and winning that belt? GSP said defending the belt is always harder. Because you're the target. There's a lot of pressure on you. You have to defend your throne. Everybody in your division has their eyes locked on you. And they know everything you're doing. When you're moving up a division, it's the opposite now. The pressure is not really on you anymore. The champion's eyes of the next division was not really focused on you. Mentally, it's harder to keep defending your belt. It's harder. That's why I believe, in my opinion, if you keep defending your belt, it's a lot more credentialed to become the greatest of all time. The status of the GOAT 
correlates very strong with consistent defense of your belt. That's why we always regarded Anderson Silva, John Jones, GSP, Demetrius Johnson as some of the greatest fighters of all time because of them constantly defending their belt against the top contenders. And if Khabib can go out there and get four title defenses, Connor the first one, Dustin Poirier the second one, Tony Ferguson, and then GSP, let's say, four defenses, he has broken the lightweight record of title defenses, which is three, and beat the highest competition possible in the strongest division in the UFC. I mean, come on, man. And let's admit, Khabib is for the hardcore fans. He wants to fight Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson, uh, GSP. He said Conor doesn't deserve a title shot. He said Conor needs to get some wins, and then they might do a rematch. He said legacy is his drive for the sport. He said money is good, but too much money is no good. He said he doesn't want to be famous. I mean, this guy is pretty much for the hardcore fans. You know, he's the champion of the hardcore fans. He doesn't want to be famous. He's famous. There's no way to get around it. He's going to be famous forever, especially from where he's at the Muslim countries, especially from Europe, especially from Russia. He's going to be huge, man, over there. Even in America, he'll be decently famous. I just wonder how him and also Connor, not together, but individually, how their pay-per-view numbers will be now. But yeah, man. And then also the Valentina Shevchenko thing. Shevchenko is not going to lose. She has to fight Caitlyn Chukagian. I've said this many times, but pound for pound, I believe Valentina Shevchenko is the best. In my criteria of pound for pound, the UFC's criteria and what people have been going by is a little bit different than what it was initially thought of as. Just skill-wise, I think she's the highest order. And also, there's been some news, such as the Jessica Andrade thing. There are a lot of debates going around about who should fight Jessica Andrade. The Karate Hadi was throwing her name out there. Uh, Michelle Watterson was throwing her name. People were trying to say Rose Namajunas, Tatiana Suarez was throwing her name out there. And there were other fighters out there as well, like Yuana, Veli Zhang. And this is no disrespect. No disrespect at all. I like Michelle Watterson. I think her style is pretty fun to watch. She has a very unique style. She's also attractive, let's be honest. That's a big That's a big reason why people want to see her get a title shot. She didn't deserve it. I mean, let's be honest. Veili Zhang got the title shot against Jessica Andrade and China. All credit to Jessica Andrade for doing that. I understand that Rose came to her country. Now she's going to someone else's country. Give all the props to Jessica Andrade. Michelle Watterson didn't deserve it, in my opinion. I mean, why? I saw some arguments out there. I was trying to look for arguments. I was trying to look for something that can change my mind about it. And the constant arguments I kept seeing were Michelle Watterson put her time in. She fought for a long time. She has a lot of experience. She's fought the best fighters, all this, all that. But I'm thinking like, okay, then why not give Chuck Liddell a title shot to John Jones? He has more experience. He beat better fighters his whole career. He's fought the elite guys forever. That's not a compelling argument at all. Or you could say BJ Penn. Why not give BJ Penn a title shot? Why not? Fighting for a long time does not mean anything, especially when you're not winning those fights. When you're fighting the best fighters and you don't win those fights, it just goes against you. It doesn't go for you. It goes against you. So yes, she fought Rose Damayunas and Tisha Torres, which are the best fighters she has ever fought against. She lost both of those fights pretty dominantly. And the best win she has is her last fight against Carolina, or you can even say before that against Felice Herrick. They're relatively on the same level because Carolina was on her decline in the rankings, right? When she beat Carolina, Carolina was already on her way down. She beat Carolina on her decline. If she beat Carolina when she was in her prime, right after, right before, around that time she fought Ioana, that's a very credible win. But we can all see Carolina's decline in her skills. And she said it herself. She said, I'm not the same fighter like I used to be. And in her last fight, it cemented that. You know, it's just not the same fighter. She's a bit older now. Um, She has her mindset on motherhood. So let's compare Michelle Watterson's last three fights to the other fighters of this division. So after a loss at Tisha Torres in December of 2017, she had a split decision win over Courtney Casey. Not a very compelling win. She beat Felice Herrig, which is a good win and beat Karolina Kovalkovich this year. So that's a decent win as well. How does she deserve a title shot over Tatiana Suarez, for an example? Compare Michelle Watterson's three-win streak 
to an 8-win streak of Suarez's, compare the competition. Suarez beat Alexa Grasso, who I would say is a better win than Courtney Casey, especially submitting her, not going split decision. She TKO'd Carla Esparza, the former champion. I would say that's a better win than Felice Herrig, especially finishing her. And then she beat Nina Ansaroff, when Nina Ansaroff is definitely a top contender of this division. That's a way better win than Carolina. How does she deserve it over Tatiana Suarez? Doesn't make any sense. And also Joanna. Joanna has a win over Tisha Torres, who beat Michelle Watterson. And also... You want to beat the champion. She has a shot at that claim before Watterson does. Rose can. It depends what you think about the champion coming off a of loss, getting a rematch. I believe she could get a rematch because of uh, because of how the fight really went. She was destroying Andrade in every exchange and dropped her. When is the last time you saw Jessica Andrade get dropped? And also she has some of the best wins in this division's history as are recent wins. And you also have Veli Zhang who they ultimately went to. Veli Zhang has a 19 win streak. And we'll look at her last three fights. She beat Danielle Taylor, Jessica Aguilar, submitted Aguilar, and she has a win over Tisha Torres. So the win over Tisha Torres is the biggest win from her career and Michelle Watterson's. And they, and they ultimately went to her. Even Dana White kind of thought that going to Michelle Watterson would be crazy. I think Watterson should fight Nina Ansaroff or Tatiana Suarez. Those are the fights. Number one contender fight. I just kind of thought the argument was crazy. And then lastly, let's go with TJ Dillashaw, I was saying. So he admitted that he cheated. He pretty much said that he cheated because he felt himself kind of breaking, cutting the weight. He said, I think six weeks out, he was crashing. His body was crashing. He didn't want to train. He had no motivation. So he took this thing to create some drive for himself, get him back into training. And in his words, he said that or he took Procrit, which is an anemia medication that quote unquote would help me not only making the way, but be myself, unquote. I mean, that's jading, dude. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Why don't we, okay, let's give Henry Sewell the same thing. We'll see how that will turn out. But uh, he said he's not mad at it. He's not mad that he cheated. Quote, because I don't think I could have taken the fight. Well, then don't take the fight. I'm obviously going to own up that I cheated. I got caught. It's a rough one, man. It's hard not to hate yourself a little bit to, I don't know, it's a tough one. Yeah, here's the thing. If you need to take PEDs, if you need to take EPO, just to take a fight, not fight in general, but take a fight, don't take that fight then. Just continue defending your belt or have Sohudo move up. There's no reason you should have went down. If you can't make the weight, don't take the fight. You're not going to see Habib move down 145. So let's go to some of the questions here. And we're going to start with the YouTube questions, where sometimes things get a little bit interesting. Now, if you're new to the podcast, new to the channel, okay, you can ask me any question. And I mean it, any question. The questions with the most likes get read first. And where you can ask me questions are, you can go to my YouTube channel, usually Sunday, Monday, or even Tuesday. I'm going to post under my community tab, questions for podcasts. Then you reply your questions under there. If Twitter is more convenient, you could just tweet me a question and hashtag them MMA meeting. So we're going to start with Aiden McGowan. Tony Ferguson versus the top 10 welterweights. For people that don't know, Tony Ferguson used to be a welterweight and he was actually knocking out a lot of those guys. At the lightweight division, he hasn't been knocking out too many people. But at welterweight, he was cleaning people out. So it gets Robbie Lawler. I actually have Tony Ferguson on this one because I don't think Lawler would be able to hit Ferguson that cleanly. Ferguson's a little bit too long. And his defense is going to be able to see some of those haymakers, some of those hooks, that check right hook that Lawler likes to throw, and even the left straight. He kind of sets it up the same every single time. I think Ferguson will be able to see those coming. So I think he would beat Lawler by a decision. Santiago Ponzinibbio. That would be a very good fight. That'd be a very interesting fight. I would actually favor Ponzinibbio, but I can see Ferguson taking it by just constantly disrupting Ponzinibbio's rhythm with that jab. 
But I think the leg kicks of Ponzinibbio and the power that he has in his punches, I don't know if Ferguson's going to be able to take all that. Anthony Pettis, again, I got Ferguson. I think he beats him relatively the same. How was Pettis below Wonderboy? He just beat him and just knocked him out. Okay, then Wonderboy. This one, I got Wonderboy. It's a very competitive fight because Wonderboy will get pressured and the reach of Ferguson with the constant output can make it very hard for Wonderboy to know when to come in and when not to. And if he gets in too close, if he throws that blitzing combination on his way in, he could meet an elbow right there and then. And Ferguson at 170 has knockout power. But him getting pressure so heavily from Ferguson is going to play into Wonderboy's countering game. And a lot of people don't take that route to Wonderboy, which is why you don't see it that often. But when you do see it, he usually knocks the opponent out. I'll go with Wonderboy on that one. Darren Till, I'm going to go with uh, Tony Ferguson. Darren Till's way too obvious. He does pretty much the same thing over and over again. And Ferguson does have high fight IQ and very good defense. If he sees the same shot keep coming at him like that, I think he'll be able to avoid most of them. Right? He has a very good ability to roll with punches. To roll with that left straight or left hook, it's going to be pretty easy for him. And he's also longer than Darren Till, able to keep that jab on him at all times. And he switches stances to take off the angles from Till. So I do think if it's a five-round fight, he will TKO Darren Till. In a three-round fight, I think he probably wins a decision. Oh, and uh, for Ponzinibbio, I think Ponzinibbio decisions Tony Ferguson as a Stephen Thompson. Um, then we go to Ben Askren. I think Tony Ferguson dominates. He's going to be bigger than Askren, I believe. At 170, I think Ferguson can get pretty big out there. He's much, much longer. Footwork is going to be pretty nice. He's going to pressure Askren, of course, but keep that jab on him at all times, man. He's going to keep Askren at bay. The reach difference is going to be so massive, especially the way they strike, especially with the way they stand. It's going to be hard to see Askren really get in there. I think he will take down Tony Ferguson, but the elbows off his back, the unorthodox submission skills, the unorthodox positioning of Tony Ferguson is going to throw Askren out of loop. And I think the damage is going to be so cumulative. Askren might win a couple rounds because of his wrestling, but I think as the fight keeps going, Tony Ferguson is going to slowly break down Askren with the cuts that he's going to probably receive from the elbows, the constant punches in the face. It's going to be a tough one for Askren. Then we go to Jorge Masvidal. I got Tony Ferguson because I believe Masvidal will be a little bit too defensive on Ferguson. Ferguson will push the pace so much, constantly throw punches and kicks at Masvidal. I think all Masvidal is going to do is be defensive roll and block punches, and that's how he's going to lose a decision. But skill for skill, strike with strike, they're very equal in terms of efficiency. I just kind of see it hard for Masvidal to really land on Tony Ferguson and get out of his shell. Rafa Dos Anjos, again, I got Tony Ferguson in a very similar style he beat him before. RDA just so tough, man. I don't see him getting finished. Colby Covington, that's an interesting fight. Here's how I think this fight will go. I thought about it for like 10 seconds or 20 seconds. I think Colby's going to win the fight up until he gets submitted. I think he's going to pressure Ferguson back, actually, because of his wrestling threat. And they're both very aggressive fighters. Neither of these two like to take the back foot. But because Colby has so many threats from flying knees to overhands, these big looping punches, the takedowns, I think Ferguson's going to try to just step back and swipe these punches away and gets driven to the cage taken down constantly this fight might keep going he might get elbowed off his back and stuff submissions will be threatened but i do think looking at colby covington's lone loss against warley elvis where he shot him for a takedown got guillotined i think eventually in a five-round fight where tony ferguson's constantly going to be at full energy the entire fight he's eventually going to get a submission off tyron woodley i think tony ferguson wins i think woodley is just a little bit too shelled up tony ferguson will have a two and a half inch reach advantage and he's going to keep that jab in woodley's face keep him against the cage the only problem is if Tony Ferguson lets up off an intelligent game plan and starts coming in when he doesn't need to, if he gets caught by that right hand, he's done. So if he keeps throwing that jab, throwing the push kick, and then comes down with an elbow and he misses, Woodley will put him out. But I think with an intelligent game plan, because Tony has high fight IQ, he should be able to decision Woodley. Let me go to Kamar Usman. 
I think Usman wins this fight. He's longer than Tony, stronger than Tony, better wrestler. The constant pressure is going to be too much. And he has a really good chin too, man. If he gets connected, I still think he'll be there for the most part. And the pressure would just win him the fight. I think Usman just on another level at this point. Muay Thai MU. Valentina versus men's top 15 flyweight. Alright, we have to slow down here. <laughs> okay, Valentina is amazing. I don't think she'll beat anyone in the top 15. Then we go to Ketz ND Lovu. I don't know how to pronounce them, sorry. Which gym would you make these fighters go to to improve them? Kevin Lee. For Asahabi, it'd probably be a good idea. Joe Rogan was right on about it where he has a similar style to GSP. Very similar build as well. I think for Asabi can really do some work with him. For Conor McGregor, this was a tricky one because mentally, I think he would do the best with where he's at now. He said it plenty of times where he has a sense of loyalty, you know. And if he goes to somewhere else, I have a feeling he won't mentally be the same kind of guy training there. But skill-wise, I think if he goes to Matt Hume, that would actually be an amazing switch. Or if he goes to like uh, Trevor Whitman, trains with like Pat Berry and those guys, Rose Namajunas and Justin Gaethje, I think they could work with his uh, striking a lot better too, as well as develop a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu game. But Matt Hume is a mastermind, especially where he can mix things together. I think his mentality can really mesh together with Conor McGregor's. Because Conor seems to like to take control of a lot of things around him, and Matt Hume seems to be like a similar kind of guy. So they could clash, but I think if they work together and figure things out, it can really put a next level to Conor McGregor's game. For Megan Anderson, I'd probably say AKA because they really focus on grappling and wrestling and that is the area she really needs to develop. For Darren Till, he's not at a bad camp, he's not with bad coaches, but he makes very questionable decisions in fights. So for him, I don't think it's an actual skill he doesn't have that he needs to work on or some hole that he really needs to work on that his gym and his coaches can't teach him. I just think it's himself rather than where he's at. Cody Garbrandt, I would say Mark Henry. Trained with Frank Yeager, Eddie Alvarez, those guys who have very good boxing, but they also have very good wrestling. And the thing that Cody Garbrandt lacks a little bit, I believe, at Team Alpha Mill is a mindset to stay focused and composed. And with Mark Henry and his integrated system of striking and, you know, terms and stuff like that can really keep Cody Garbrandt focused during fights. For Ronda Rousey, I think ATT. And I say that because uh, her overall game needs work. Besides just BJJ and already elite level judo. For her judo itself, she has to go to a specific judo school or specific judo coaches to really get that to another level. I don't think that's where she's going to need progression. It's everything else. All striking. Everything with striking, positioning, footwork, all that stuff. She needs to learn a lot better. And I think at ATT, with the amount of coaches that they have, the amount of expertise that they have over there and all the athletes there, I think it can accelerate her progression in all forms of martial arts very quickly. For Uriah Hall, I think if he works with Henry Hoof, I don't know what they're called now, but where Robbie Lawler trains as well as Kamar Usman, working on fundamental kickboxing as well as Muay Thai, it's going to compact everything and be a lot more effective. They can also teach him wrestling there. They have Usman there. They have Rashad Evans, I believe. They have Greg Jones as a coach. They have a lot of good wrestlers that can work on his takedown defense. Dominic Reyes, um, I don't see a problem with his gym. I think he's just so young right now, so inexperienced. He will make a lot of mistakes. But for his skill set, very good kickboxer, fundamentally sound. I think Matt Hume can really accelerate his progression as well. Edson Barboza, I think if Barboza goes to King's MMA, it can take his striking to another level. But with Mark Henry and the guys he's able to train with over there, his wrestling is going to progress a lot. Maybe AKA with a mixture of both good kickboxing over there, as well as good wrestling, can really take the best of both worlds and put them together. 
Taito Iwasa, I think he'll do really good at ATT as well because uh, ATT has a really good record of taking raw talent and molding real skill behind it. All the rough edges, they turn into sharp corners. And I think it's what they'll be able to do with Taito Iwasa, who does have a lot of talent, but just his skill is not up to par. And Travis Brown, I think if he goes back to Greg Jackson's, that's a good fit for him. I and mean, he was amazing when he was with them. Then we go to Mutazim. You're walking down the road with your girl. Oh, I already know where this is going. You hear a slapping sound and then a scream. You have just found out that someone slapped your girl's ass. You turn around to go and face the guy, but you see Francis Ngannou. What do you do? Well, first I have to check if he broke her ass or something, but I would use this as a good opportunity to really tell for ass is tight enough. Ask Ngannou if he gives me an answer or not and just walk away. What do you want me to do? Did you see his fight with Alistair Overy? Then we go to James T. I've been scouring the internet to find this out, and I believe you're the only man to answer this question. Just how good is Kevin Lee? Well, I offer you this. When it comes to the complex system of the business, Kevin Lee might be the only one that understands what's really going on here. We have a guy at lightweight who fought for the belt. It's an interim belt, but he fought for the belt against who you would say is the champion, able to go from that to then welterweight, able to talk his way into a fight with another former champion. In that, in another entirely different division. Mind you, it's 15 pounds, not 10 pounds. And guys, he might be very soon to get to a title shot. Yes, he just lost that fight to Rafael Dos Anjos. He's still a young competitor. And with this business-savvy approach to the fighting game, which may be the best, I don't know, it might be. Kevin Lee has inserted himself in the conversation, mind you, in the midst of the Habib and George St. Pierre debacle. And guys, he might just get that fight first. Now, how good that tells you he is, we don't know. Nobody knows. But the thing that's most important is where does Henry Cejudo fit into all this? Then we go to Dan Stevenson. What happened to Marlon's cardio against Henry? I might be wrong, but I thought he used to have full five rounds as World Series of Fighting Champion. Yeah, he's gone five rounds twice. Once against Josh Retzinghaus and against Josh Hill. Other than that, he has gone three rounds pretty well against John Dodson, against Shaman Moise. He went almost a full three rounds against Rafael Sansao in their first fight, but then against Henry Cejudo, he lost energy. But I think it's his commitment in his shots. He was really trying to knock Henry Cejudo's head off with everything he was throwing. He was moving a lot, throwing a lot of power. If you notice about Cejudo, Cejudo didn't expend that much energy. When he was throwing strikes back at Marlon Moraes, and Marlon was throwing a lot more shots in those exchanges, he was throwing a lot more power. He was committing a lot more than Cejudo, and he's not a wrestler. So when he gets taken down, that's Cejudo's world. Cejudo's going to have better cardio there naturally than Marlon Moraes because of his experience in that area. And he just slowly lost energy throughout the fight. It almost went three rounds, but... Yeah, Mullen Rice, I think, just did a little bit too much. Then we go to C underscore Eisen. What do you think about Faber's return? How does he hold up against the current bantamweights? I don't like his return, but he did do pretty well in his last fight before he retired. So I still believe he's going to be better than like a BJ Penn or something like that. He's still going to be competitive with some fights, but this fight of his against Ricky Simon, it's not going to be easy. Man. I think it's how you pronounce it, right? Or is it Hickey Simone? It's going to be a tough fight for him. I mean, we're talking about a real prospect here, and Uriah Faber's older. I mean, even though he's still good, he still has skills, he's still 40 years old in the bantamweight division. And he's coming off one win against Brad Pickett, who was also pretty old. And before that, he lost to Jimmy Rivera and got destroyed by Dominic Cruz. I don't like his comeback. I don't feel good about it. And against the current bantamweights, he's not going to do that well, man. I see him only competing up against the veterans, and only the veterans are pretty old. We're not talking about Dominic Cruz either. Dominic Cruz is still elite. Then we go to Matt Cruz. How well do you think a prime Muhammad Ali would do against the elite heavyweight boxers of today? Who would be his easiest and hardest matchup? Keep up the great work. 
Thank you so much, man. I actually had this discussion a couple times recently. I think Ali could do pretty well with some of these guys, but let's talk about the top four guys. Let's talk about Joshua, Wilder, Fury, and Ruiz. His best chance is against Ruiz because Ruiz doesn't move too much. He's not that quick to cover distance. Muhammad Ali is going to be faster to exit away. His footwork is very fluid. He has a very good jab, very good headshots on Ruiz, and he's longer as well. It's going to be hard for Ruiz to get in distance. And even if he does, Muhammad Ali had to deal with guys like George Foreman, who had the power that he had, or Ernie Shavers. And mind you, that Ali was not even prime Ali. And he was able to withstand and cover up and block some of those shots. Ruiz is faster in the pocket, but he doesn't have that kind of power. I don't think he'll be able to knock out Muhammad Ali. I think that's his easiest matchup out of the four. His hardest matchup is either going to be Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder. I'm having a tough time thinking who would be a harder matchup. Here's the thing about the other three. They're bigger than Ali in every which way. They're longer. They're taller. And everybody besides Tyson Fury have enormous power. Tyson Fury, with the huge reach advantage he has over Ali, he's a lot more technical than the other two. And that's going to play into Ali's game, but it's actually more Ali's going to play into Tyson Fury's game. You know what I'm saying? And as for Wilder, he can knock out Muhammad Ali. He can land from far. He has a longer reach as well. He has 12-round cardio. He's not going to be like a George Foreman who's going to gas out in the mid-rounds against Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is not going to really have the option of using the rope-a-dope on Deontay Wilder. It's going to be very hard to do that to him, especially because... The way Wilder throws punches, it's a very sideways stance and he's throwing straight punch. He's not throwing these hooks and looping slow overhands and uppercuts that Foreman was throwing at him. Wilder's punches are a lot faster and a lot more precise. And they're just as powerful. And he can keep up for 12 rounds. It's going to be tough for Ali to beat those two guys. Very tough. Tyson Fury, like I said, Ali's going to play into his game. It's going to be very technical. A lot of jabs getting thrown. But with the reach advantage that Tyson Fury has, with how fast he is... It's going to be a very hard puzzle from Muhammad Ali to solve. And here's the thing about these four boxers that they have over Ali. They know how Ali fights. They've studied him. Ali has no idea about these guys until he gets to training camp, right? As for Anthony Joshua, I don't think Joshua is going to be able to take all the damage from Muhammad Ali. Even though Ali is known for his finesse and his technique and his footwork and stuff like that, Ali had decent power. And it's not a one-shot knockout power like a Wilder or something like that. If he lands those stunning, blazing combinations... He will put down Anthony Joshua. He is faster than Joshua in almost every which way. His 1-2 is going to be a major weapon against Joshua. The only problem with Ali in that fight is it's going to be hard for him to evade Joshua. Because he can do that. Although, he could change his whole style up and start brawling with him a little bit more. Which is something that we have seen Joshua get in trouble against Klitschko against Andy Ruiz. So, yeah, I would say Andy Ruiz is the easiest. Then Anthony Joshua. Then I'll probably say Deontay Wilder because Ali is a lot more technical. And then against Tyson Fury. But I think Ali would lose to Fury, Wilder, and maybe Joshua. Ruiz, just because of his style and his build, it's going to give Muhammad Ali a lot of openings. That is in no way meaning that Ruiz is the worst out of the four, just for the stylistic matchup. Then we go to Casino. So Henry Sudo mentioned about possibly moving up to Featherweight. Do you think it's possible? And if so, how does he match up against Holloway or Edgar? Um, Yeah, it's possible. He's not a small guy. He still will have to cut some weight. I mean, he might have to cut 15 pounds. 10-15 pounds to get there. I would say he is like very similar in weight to Frankie Edgar. Because Edgar doesn't cut too much weight to 145. And how does he do against those two guys? Against Holloway? I just don't see him winning that. Holloway's way too big, first of all. He's enormous against Henry Cejudo. His striking's way better and he has a chin. 
and insane takedown defense. It's a very hard matchup for Henry Cejudo. And as for Frankie Edgar, I actually think it's extremely competitive. And I might even favor Henry Cejudo in that fight because in every aspect of the game, Henry Cejudo is superior to Frankie Edgar. I think he has just as good at boxing. I think his hands might even be better than Edgar's. Edgar, he chains some combinations pretty well, but he doesn't have the power in his hands to really threaten you. And his setups are always the same. His combos might be a little bit different, but his setup to the combinations are almost all identical. Sohudo has better hands, I believe, from his boxing to his karate. It's very different. He's able to mix up the two like he did to Marlon Marais, right? His, uh, his karate wasn't working, so he changed it up to inside dirty boxing and won because of that. As for the kicks, I think Henry Sudo is better. Uh, maybe not light kicks in general, but just overall kicks. Sudo throws a lot more. He's a lot more dynamic and powerful with them. And the wrestling is no contest. Sudo dominates Frank Yeager. So I would favor Henry Sudo. And if Edgar beats Max Holloway and somehow Sudo gets that featherweight title shot, we're seeing a triple champion here, in my opinion. Anur Fadiloglu. I don't know how to pronounce that, man. Sorry about that. Justin Bieber versus Tom Cruise. Oh my god. Here's one thing I have to say. Why was this all over the feed? Why was all over my feed? I don't want to see this. Why were MMA channels and articles and accounts talking about this thing? It's not going to happen, first of all. I don't believe it's going to happen. And it's it's dumb. I mean, if I want to see this fight, I could just go to like the bar or something. Who would win? Justin Bieber would probably win. Because he could be Tom Cruise's grandson. You know, how old is Tom Cruise? Like 60s, 50s? It'd be hard for him to get through the training camp for the fight. Justin Bieber, at least, you know, I guess he trained with Floyd a little bit. He's more athletic. He's bigger. He has the youth. And that's pretty much all in, all he needs to win this fight. There's going to be no skill. I understand Tom Cruise was a wrestler in high school or something. So, yeah, Justin, <laughs> Justin Bieber would win this. Like, I understand MMA fans don't care about this. But, like, it's weird how people just care about this. I mean, we got a singer versus an actor. We have someone who is proficient at making sounds with their voice versus someone who can take up different personalities and behaviors in front of a camera. And these two guys are going to fight in a cage. It just sounds so ridiculous. But yeah, I got my money on Justin Bieber. I'm just curious. Do they actually have betting odds on this? Oh, no, they do. Oh, Cruz is actually a two-to-one favorite on some of these lines? Oh, easy. This is easy, then. I think it's a pretty easy one to call, but it's, again, two inexperienced people uh, fighting each other, so anything can happen. Then we go to Jordan Presnell. Name the biggest holes in these fighters' game. Kamaru Usman, Kevin Lee, Max Holloway, Izzo Adesanya, Dustin Poirier. So, with Kamaru Usman, striking defense in general. His defense usually relies on reach and distance. Nothing really else. He doesn't block too well. He doesn't slip. He doesn't move his head too well. We've seen Emil Mech able to connect on him many times. It's just the pressure with the wrestling gets people on edge. So just overall striking defense, keeping up the guard, and moving the head effectively is the biggest thing. As well as light kick defense. Kevin Lee uh, doesn't move his head at all when he's throwing punches. At all. He's a wide open target. And he has a long reach, so when he's throwing those long punches, if someone's able to slip on the outside of him or on the inside of him, there is nothing he's going to be able to do to stop it. Because his head is right there, and the long reach has to be retracted. And for Max Holloway, he also doesn't have the greatest head movement when he's moving away, though. When he's using his feet and moving around, he doesn't really move his head. He's a master at foot placement and knowing where he is at all times. But it's just like Dustin Poirier was able to do. Dustin Poirier was able to connect as Max Holloway was moving away from him. Because Poirier was making these giant steps forward to get to him. And Holloway likes to take very minor steps and works with minor distance work. When you lengthen your distance of attacks and movement and all that stuff, you're able to get to him a lot easier. Israel Adesanya, 
with the reach that he has, he tends to let opponents get in too close. And that's because he doesn't throw jabs as often as he should, I believe. Other than that, he's amazing. But that is a big hole. I mean, if they're able to get on the inside of him like Kelvin was able to, it could be enough to finish him. You know, it could be enough to beat him in fights. Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier is definitely the most well-rounded of all these guys. He does everything fundamentally very well. I would say body and head-kicking defense. He doesn't check kicks too much, but the way he defends kicks is by countering. So if you kick him in the legs, he looks to counter over the top. So I always say kicking defense for the most part. Wait, why is this all the way down here? It's the most like comment. Eric Justan. How much money would you demand for effing Chris Cyborg and Nganu in a threesome with Errol Hawani as the cameraman with enthusiastic commentary? I don't know how much money I would demand for that. I probably wouldn't be tuning in at all. That would send earthquakes across the globe. Dude, you made this sound really bad. With Ariel Hawani as the cameraman with enthusiastic commentary. That's almost, it's almost a cuck position. All right, we'll do two more. Uh, last one's pretty quick. So we're going to go to one more with Anur Fadiloglu. My man Weasel, does Francis Ngannou have the skills to be a long-term heavyweight champion? Also, does he beat DC or John Jones? Yes, I think he does have the skills to be a long-term heavyweight champion because he's pretty much beating all the contenders. You know, he beat Overeem, beat Kane, beat Curtis Blades twice. Who else is really up there? He has to fight Volkov, maybe. He didn't beat Derek Lewis. He would have to fight him again. Stipe's there and Daniel Cormier. And he is fighting JDS right now. So if he goes and beats JDS, goes and gets the heavyweight title shot, beats the winner of Stipe and DC, which is not impossible. That can absolutely happen. Yeah, I think there's nobody that beats him. If he's able to get past Stipe and DC themselves, just them two guys, I don't think there's anybody that beats Francis Ngannou in the heavyweight division. But then people will say, like you just said here, what if John Jones comes up? I've had this debate. It's a fun debate. It's one no one knows. But I think people think I'm crazy about this. I think Francis Ngannou knocks out John Jones. I understand Jones is a lot more experienced, a lot more technical in everything. Besides, I would say Ngannou is a better boxer overall. That's where Jones' biggest hole is at, and it still is. But what does Jones do that is as big as defense? He likes to post and retreat. It's what works on everybody. It works on even Gustafson because he doesn't have as much of a reach. Ngannou pretty much has like a similar reach as John Jones. If Jones posts on him and Ngannou is moving forward with that big left, you bet it's going to connect on John Jones, right? That pulse and retreat is not going to really work. There's also leg kicks there as well. Nobody kicks John Jones' legs. And Ganu has extremely powerful leg kicks, like he threw at Curtis Blades. But you say, John Jones is a wrestler. He'll take him down. Curtis Blades is a wrestler too. He's an amazing wrestler. He didn't take down Ngannou when he threw a leg kick at him. And nobody takes down Francis Ngannou that easily besides Stipe Miocic, who played it very smart. But he has a very different skill set than John Jones. He has great head movement, great fundamental boxing, way different than John Jones, and he has a very different wrestling game. He was making Nagano miss, making him tired, and then took him down after that. John Jones' takedowns usually come from the clinch. Yes, he can shoot in on you, and they are pretty powerful sometimes like he shot at Gustus in his last fight, but usually he gets him from the clinch, and that is somewhere I don't think he's going to beat Nganu. Nganu is way too powerful there, way too strong. You saw Overeem couldn't believe when he made contact in the clinch with Nganu. It's very hard. I actually do think Nganu is probably the guy to beat John Jones, but a heavyweight. But then again, you have to think, John Jones is a small heavyweight. I mean, he's tall and long and wide and good frame for heavyweight, but he doesn't weigh that much. Yes, he might be able to get to 230, but to fight a 260-pound Francis Nganu, that's going to be tough for him, man. Um, and as for DC, how does Ngannou do against DC? I actually think DC might be Ngannou because of his wrestling style, as well as he will pressure Ngannou. But we know DC likes to lean to his right. He still does it. He did it to Derek Lewis. He did it to Stephen Miocic. 
If Ngannou goes and pivots with that left uppercut of his, he's putting DCL cold. But that's like the only thing. If Ngannou doesn't land that big left as DC's making a mistake of leaning too much, I see DC winning everywhere else pretty much. Besides maybe exchanging on the feet, of course. I just think that DC is going to be able to take him down. Maybe not take him down in the first round because Ngannou does have really good takedown defense early when he's full of energy. But if he's able to work on Ngannou against the cage and put his weight on top of him, Ngannou might eventually lose uh, energy to stop the takedowns further on. And then the last one on YouTube, Sunburn Tongue 17 In your honest opinion, do you believe Artem stands a chance to legitimately defeat Pauly in their bare knuckle boxing match? He does have a chance because uh, it is bare knuckle. It doesn't have those huge gloves to defend yourself with. And those openings around the hands, Pauly has fundamental boxing, right? He likes to put his hands up on punches. But if they get right around the hand on the inside... And that happens a lot in MMA. It's a whole different game. You can't really block effectively like you can in boxing or in kickboxing or Muay Thai. And that is one of the places that Artem has an advantage over Pauly Malanaji. But I favor Pauly. Way more experience. He may not have the power, but he does have the skill. He does have the reflexes and the feeling of a boxing fight. But Artem definitely has a chance. The openings with no gloves, combining with the power of Artem, he can put out Pauly Malanaji. And then quickly we'll go to the Twitter questions. We're going to start with Parth Nukala at Parth Nuke. Number one, can you discuss differences between effective and skilled fighters? For example, Habib is the best lightweight, but he's nowhere near the most skilled. In my opinion, Musasi is the most technical skilled at middleweight, but Yoel and Whitaker are still better. Thanks. Yes, there is a difference. And actually, someone earlier brought up something very similar to boxing. The difference between the best versus the most skilled, in a sense. In this case, it's the most effective. If you're the most effective, you're the better fighter. Such as Tony Ferguson, for an example. I believe Tony is skilled, and he's effective. But people like to say he's not a skilled fighter. He's not a technical fighter. Technical does not mean fundamentally sound in the martial arts that you know of. He has his own system going. He does stuff that nobody else does. The most effective. So, let's say Anthony Johnson. Rumble Johnson. Definitely not the most skilled fighter. He fought Alexander Gustafson. Gustafson is more skilled in almost every single area besides maybe kicks. When it comes to MMA wrestling, boxing, and BJJ, Gustafson is a higher level than Anthony Johnson, but Anthony Johnson put him out with his hands, mind you. I understand some people say there's a headbutt and stuff. He was a lot more effective in those exchanges because there isn't just skills. There's also attributes, and those make a difference. Francis Ngannou is not more skilled than Cain Velasquez. Able to put him out too when Cain was going for a takedown. Effective is what works versus what is technical, what is skilled, what is what people think of as a better technique or a better way to fight. Tony Ferguson is a perfect example of that. You know, uh, Edson Barboza versus Justin Gaethje. Who's the more skilled fighter? Who's the more skilled striker? It was a striking battle. Edson Barboza is one of the most skilled strikers in the UFC, mind you. Yet he gets put out by Justin Gaethje, who is more of a brawler. You know, his style is not skillful, but it's effective. He closed the distance and brawled. He created an effective game plan. He created an effective approach to fight the style of Barbosa who focuses a lot on distance work. But skills in terms of footwork, striking, positioning, all that stuff, Barbosa trumps Justin Gaethje. There's also fight IQ too. Justin Gaethje knew how to implement his game on Barbosa and make him fall into that trap. There's a lot of things going on. There's also fight IQ which goes hand in hand with effectiveness. Skills does not really go hand in hand with Fight IQ. Fight IQ is an entirely different aspect of the game. There's skill, Fight IQ, and attributes. Those are like the main three aspects of MMA. 
And skills might be the most important. If you have skills, you have a much better chance of winning fights. There's more opportunities for you to win fights. Then there comes fight IQ, how to implement things and how to approach the fight specifically. And then there's also attributes like power and speed and reach and stuff like that, which is all natural. And those can absolutely win you fights like Anthony Johnson, for an example. Then you brought the example of Khabib Nurmagomedov. Yes, he's the best lightweight, but he's not the most skilled in all around aspects of the game. Right? He's not the best striker, he's not the best kicker, he doesn't really throw kicks, um, he doesn't have the best knees, he doesn't have the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but as fight IQ is very high, his attributes are crazy because of his strength and his cardio, his pace also goes into his fight IQ as well, but he's a very skilled grappler, he's able to manipulate opponents and make them fall into his game. Yuval Amaro, perfect example. Yes, he's a skilled wrestler and he actually has pretty good striking, but he's a lot more effective than he is skilled. I'm going to go to Shaggy at UA Smatico. If you have to choose someone, who will take the champion's belt in every division? So in heavyweight, I think it's Stipe Miocic. Light heavyweight, I think it would be Johnny Walker. Middleweight, to be honest, I don't think anybody's going to take it from Whitaker that I see right now. But if I have to choose someone that has a chance, probably Gaslam, if not him, Costa. Welterweight, I'll say Santiago Ponzinibbio. Lightweight, Tony Ferguson. Featherweight, Zabit Magomesharipov. Bantamweight, Dominic Cruz. Flyweight. Um, I don't see anybody taking it from Cejudo. But if I have to choose, I guess Benavidez has the best chance. Uh, Women's featherweight, Cyborg. Uh, Bantamweight, again, I don't see anybody. But if I see anybody, it might be Caitlin Vieira. Flyweight, <laughs> nobody. Probably Roxanne Modafferi. And strawweight, probably Joanna. Really quick by at Nicola Jew Jack. Hey, Weasel, I have two questions. Number one, can you make a Street Fight Breakdown 2 if you have time? Yes, I actually really want to do it. It's fun to make those, and it's pretty, it's pretty humorous, too. Uh, number two, do you think Tyson Fury would have defended Wilder's right hand better if he didn't have his hand so low? Keep up the great work, mate. Uh, yes, definitely, 100%. But both times when he got knocked down, he hopped back with both of his feet instead of lowering his stance. Then we go to at Kchunk29. How would you compare the light heavyweight division of this era to the light heavyweight division of the 2000s? Um, the 2000s was a lot more stacked in terms of that era's quality of fighter. It was a lot more popular. It was the most popular division with Chuck Liddell, Shogun Hua, Rashad Evans, Leota Machida, uh, Rampage Jackson, Vanderlei. There were so many people. Rich Franklin came up. Uh, there was a lot of stars in the light heavyweight division. And it was more stacked. I mean, it was more competitive. Yes, the level of fighter today is better than then. So if we were to match up every fighter, the fighters today would win. Even today, who seem to be a lot more shallow, they would still most likely beat the fighters of back then. Like Jan Blachowicz would beat like a, I don't know, Shogun Hua back then. You know, The level of fighter has just progressed so far. You know, Thiago Santos would knock out Chuck Liddell. It was a lot more fun to watch back then because it was so competitive. It was one of the best divisions in any era of the UFC. But today's is not bad. It's just John Jones stands heads and shoulders above everybody else. If John Jones was fighting back then and he was at the level he is today, it'd be the same thing. Everybody would look terrible besides him. Then we go to at Matthew Melange. Number one, does Yuala Merrill's $27 million lawsuit now make him the second all-time richest UFC fighter behind Conor? Uh, I don't know. Is he going to really get all that? I understand if they have all that money, they would give it to him, but whatever he's getting from them, he's going to be rich. Um, I hope he gets $27 million. He will be the second richest fighter, most likely, right? Number two, how far does Uriah Faber get in the current bantamweight ranks? One, two out of his last five. Yeah, he doesn't go far. I actually do not see him winning if he fights actual contenders of the division. He might retire on a loss this time. 
I hope not. I really hope not. Then we go to at Kiwi1044. You've mentioned in the past that it's best to slip off the same side you throw your punch. Straight left, slip away to the left. Could you explain this why this is good form? Also, there is cases where it'd be better to do the opposite. Throw right, slip out to the left. For example, I know Cruz darts in with his right straight and pivots away to the left. I could be wrong, but I think Tyson Fury against Wilder slip to the opposite side sometimes. Yes, obviously there are cases to slip off a different side. It makes these a little bit more unorthodox. Okay, but if you throw your punch, so let's say you throw a straight right, you're orthodox fighter, you throw straight right, if you slip out to that same side, you slip to your right or fade away, whatever you want to do to move your head out, you can use that punch, your shoulder that you threw out to block the chin as you move away and naturally allows you to retract the punch, right? For an example, you're in orthodox stance. If you throw your straight right, you'll keep the form as textbook as possible and you try to move your head out to the left. Now what you have to do is you have to move out your left foot and if you don't, if you just try to slip out and retract back, it's a longer way to get back and you're off balance when your head is leaned out to the left. Now do it to the right, it's a natural way to get your head back. Now if you throw a jab in orthodox stance, if you move your head out to the right, your head gets away from the shoulder, right? Your jaw and your chin get away from the shoulder so it's not covered anymore. If you move it out to the left, your chin is hidden behind the shoulder. The same kind of thing. And when you throw out the jab, what do you do naturally? You step, right? You step with your jab, you step before your jab, whatever you want to do with the step, you usually step with the jab. Now there isn't that long process like throwing the straight right hand. You have to move your left foot again after the punch. And opposite way is the same thing. There are cases if you throw a right overhand or a right hook where you want to step and move your head where the punch is moving. So it's creating an arc to your left when you throw a right hook in the orthodox stance. And you want to sometimes move your head with it and that way you can get your head out that same side. That can work sometimes because there's a lot of power momentum when you put your head with your punch. But after the punch gets thrown out there, it's the same thing again, right? You got to move your left foot if you want to move your head out to the left. So when you throw your right hand, moving your head out to the right brings it back into position naturally. If you throw your left, it brings it back to the position naturally, and you're covering your chin on each side. Now with Cruz's stuff, Cruz does things that's very unorthodox, very unpredictable. When he throws out the right dart and then moves out to his left, he's never really covering his chin though, right? He's never really putting his guard up and stuff like that, so it's not a textbook thing. When I'm talking about throwing your punch and exiting out the same way, it's a lot more fundamentals. Cruz doesn't do anything in fundamentals. Everything he does is like a system of his own. Um, so it's a very different thing. You know, it's almost like Tony Ferguson, right? So there are cases where it's very unorthodox and fighters do things specifically different, uniquely different. They're outliers. But for outliers, you never want to make that the general statement, you know? Again, for you, if you train and stuff, you can come up with a different system of your own that nobody else does. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying knowing the fundamentals and how they work is a very important thing for everybody. Doesn't mean you have to fight like a textbook fighter that does everything by the book because we'll do a couple more here. Then we go to at Wellen Kivel 88. Since Ortega pulled out, what do you think about moving Moicano to fight Zabit and having Cater replace him versus Korean Zombie? Probably too late at this point, but who do you have in those matchups? That'd be great. I want to see Zabit fight, man. Cater came off a really good win, was not injured, I believe. I think he could come back pretty soon. Cater versus Korean Zombie is amazing. It's an insanely good fight. It doesn't do too much Korean Zombie, but he's coming off a loss. He doesn't really have much to say. And Moicano versus Zabit is also an amazing fight between two top-ranked fighters. Who would I have in those matchups? I think Zabit beats Moicano. His wrestling's better. The Sambo can really work against the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in that fight. Zabit is longer, taller, more dynamic, way faster, better kicks overall. Besides leg kicks, Moicano's really good leg kicks. And that's where Zabit is going to have a problem. But the boxing is going to be complete in Zabit's side. 
His jab and left hook are going to devastate Moicano. Um, as for Cater versus Korean Zombie, I got Cater. I got Cater. I think it's a bad fight for Korean Zombie. Zombie is a little too wild. A little too reckless. Leaves his chin in the open too much. And Cater has some of the best boxing in the UFC. He barely makes any mistake in his hands. And Korean Zombie doesn't throw kicks too much. He doesn't throw leg kicks too much. He's going to play right into Cater's game. And Cater's a hard guy to take down. He's bigger too and longer. And he has more power. That's a tough fight for Korean Zombie. I think it's blasted by that right hand. Last one by Joshua Miller at Ultimate Poser 1. The UFC 242 press conference, do you agree with Khabib that should he beat Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson, and George St. Pierre, he retires the pound-for-pound goal of MMA. Personally, if he beats just Tony after Dustin Poirier, he doesn't even need GSP. Uh, yeah, you can make that argument, but I believe if he beats those three fighters, he is the greatest of all time. Just three more wins. Tough wins. Really tough wins, but three more wins and he would be the pound-for-pound goal. If he only beats Tony and Dustin, it's tough to say. I probably still say GSP might be the GOAT, but he's in that conversation. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. My next video is most likely going to be maybe a breakdown. MMA prospects, maybe. I am working on that. It's almost done. So be luck for a bunch of stuff. And again, thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.